Our first reading this morning is from Man's Search for Meaning by Victor E. Frankel. We who have lived in concentration camps can remember those who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from us but the last of human freedoms, the freedom to choose our spirit in any circumstance. Our second reading is from the uh, Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh, a piece called Call Me By My True Names from his book Peace Is Every Step, The Path of Mindfulness in Everyday Life. Before I share this reading, I just I want to say, I want to let you know that it might be a difficult one to hear. In fact, this sermon probably has stories that are difficult to hear, that will touch perhaps pieces of your own life or your family's experience or those close to you. Uh, so I want to say that up front, that this forgiveness is hard work, and there are deep, deep wounds and pain around forgiveness. And we're not shying away from that, but I want you to have fair warning. This is the piece called Call Me By My True Names. Do not say that I'll depart tomorrow because even today I still arrive. Look deeply. I arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with wings still fragile, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, in order to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that is alive. I am the mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I am the frog, swimming happily in the clear water of a pond, and I am also the grass snake, who, approaching in silence, feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks, and I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart yet not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo, with plenty of power in my hands, and I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom in all walks of life. My pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills up the four oceans. Please call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and my laughs at once, 
so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and so the heart, so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. We almost need two or three months on forgiveness, not, not just the one we have this month of January as we've been uh, exploring the different facets of forgiveness. It is a powerful personal topic, and what I know after many conversations with you is that it is a deep one. There are pieces and components that are not easily resolved. As I said last week, forgiveness is about giving up all hope for a better past, because we can't control the past. Forgiveness is about the future. It is about giving up your claim to anger or need for vengeance or just resting and and stewing in bitterness. And for those of you who are Viking fans, this is particularly apropos, perhaps. (laughs) It's about giving up all hope for a better past. (laughs) You you know this, though. I mean, we've, we've had conversations Uh, after the service and by email, you know that forgiveness is a journey, a long road, not an easy road. Many of you have said you're on that road, but that the forgiveness marker or finish line feels impossibly far and, and difficult to reach. Or that if you do get to that marker, you have to go by that line or that marker again and again and again. What's true is that it takes time to work out all of the little pieces of hurt and pain, the times we have been wounded, to get that out of our body where it doesn't hurt as much. It's like when you're washing dishes and you cut your thumb on a glass that you have broken underneath the suds in the sink and a big cut on your thumb, you get stitches, it hurts, it eventually heals, A year later, things seem fine, but then you notice on the scar a little bump, a little white bump, a pimple that you pick at that is painful. And you scratch it away and realize that there was a little piece of glass still in there. And maybe you feel queasy now or feel queasy if that's happened to you, thinking thinking how much the initial cut hurt, but how long it took for that little piece and that little bit of cutting to finally work itself out of you. And forgiveness, I think, is like that. And what you've said to me is it doesn't feel like the glass or the pain that's there, those shards that are there, will ever work itself out of your life. That the hurt is too great, the betrayal too much, whatever it is. So the question I want to explore this morning with you is, are there limits to forgiveness Is forgiveness sometimes impossible, simply too much to ask, to expect? This morning, we'll explore this question through two stories, one about Simon and one about Steve. First, Simon, as in Simon Wiesenthal, a Jew who survived the Nazi concentration camps and understand that only one and a half percent of those who were in the camps actually survived. He lived through the experience and is perhaps best known as the Nazi hunter. He spent the decades after World War II tracking down 
uh, and trying in, in courts uh, Nazi leaders who had been responsible for some of the worst of the atrocities. He also wrote a book called The Sunflower on the possibilities and limits of forgiveness. The heart of this book, it's a short book, revolves around an exchange between Simon and a young German soldier. One day, as Simon and others are doing forced labor near a makeshift German hospital, a German nurse approaches Simon and says, come with me. And she takes Simon to the bed of Karl, a young German soldier, perhaps 20, 21 years old, badly wounded, bandaged, near death. He knows he's near death. The nurse leaves, and Carl explains that he is racked with guilt. He tells Simon that not too long ago, he and other German soldiers rounded up a group of Jews, perhaps 200, in front of a house in a small town they were moving through. In Carl's words, I could see the expression in their eyes as they were gathered together. Fear indescribable fear. And then a truck arrived with cans of petrol. The strong men among the Jews were ordered to carry the cans into the house and upper stories. Then we drove the Jews into the house. Then the door was locked, and we, with guns, were posted around the house. At this point, Simon, like you, knows how this story will end. And he gets up to leave. He doesn't need to hear it. He doesn't want to hear it. But Carl reaches out towards Simon and begs him to stay. And for some reason, Simon stays, perhaps as he says, it is to hear in Carl's own words the full horror of the Nazis' inhumanity. Carl continues with his confession, his story. We were told to throw grenades into the building. There were explosions. The building caught fire. Any Jew who tried to escape was gunned down. This is horrible to hear, I know. It's horrible to imagine. It's horrible to know this happened multiple times again and again. Carl continues with his story, I want to die in peace. I know what I have told you is terrible, a terrible crime. As I wait for death, I have longed to talk to a Jew and beg forgiveness from him. Only I didn't know whether there were any Jews left. I know that what I am asking is almost too much for you, but without your answer, without forgiveness, I cannot die in peace. There was an uncanny silence in the room, writes Simon. And at last I made up my mind. And without a word, I left. Simon ends his story by asking us, the readers, what would you have done had you been in my shoes. What would you have done had you been in his shoes?
And the rest of the book is nearly 40 responses from leading intellectuals as they wrestle with and try to answer that question. Some respondents wonder, if the universe has a moral escape valve labeled forgiveness, does that permit evil not only to survive, but to thrive? Others lift up and look at the power of sacrificial love, as in I sacrifice or give up my claim to revengeance or retribution. And they look at figures such as Nelson Mandela or Thomas Borges. Mandela, as you know, in prison for 27 years on his release, forgave his jailers. And Thomas Borges, the Nicaraguan Sandinista fighter who was captured and brutally tortured by the Contras, was then asked by the court in the trial of that to name his punishment for his torturers. And he said, my punishment is to forgive you. But these respondents acknowledge, in this case, Simon is not free like Mandela or Thomas. Forgive, yes, says the Dalai Lama, but do not forget. And he relates Simon's story to his own struggle and experience with the Tibetan people. He recalls of connecting with a Tibetan monk who had escaped after 18 years in a Chinese prison, and he asked the monk, what was the biggest danger or threat you faced while in prison? And the monk amazingly responds, what I feared the most was losing my compassion for the Chinese. For the Dalai Lama, forgiveness allows compassion to grow and the heart to remain open. A number of respondents said, no, you cannot forgive in this situation. Especially, you cannot forgive on behalf of others who have not given you permission to forgive. No, says another, you cannot forgive Carl, who sees Simon, even in this situation of his confession, not as a human being, but as a tool to help him, Carl, achieve some relief from his guilt. And many of them say, after trying to answer this question, unless you've been in Simon's shoes, how can you possibly judge his actions and whether he could or even should forgive. This experience haunts Simon. He does not forgive, and he does not forget. He spends the rest of his life tracking down over 1,000 Nazi leaders, inclu- excuse me, including Adolf Eichmann, the architect of the Holocaust. So perhaps in the face of such evil and such destruction, such inhumanity, forgiveness is impossible. But I remember the words of Viktor Frankl, another concentration camp survivor, who said that in every moment we have the freedom to choose our spirit to choose how we will be oriented in the world, how we will respond to what has happened. And Frankel's words make me think of the story of Eva Kor. 
Ava is another concentration camp survivor, and she and her twin sister survived in part because they were twins, and and they had medical experiments done on them. For nearly 50 years after Auschwitz liberation, Ava was filled with anger and bitterness toward the Nazis. But at the 50th anniversary of the liberation, she stood at the ruins of the gas chambers, and she shared a forgiveness letter with one of the Nazi doctors who had been at that concentration camp, and he signed a document acknowledging the horrors of what had happened there, what the gas chambers had been used to do. And even this is complicated, you see, because this is the only doctor of 41 of the physicians who had been at Auschwitz, who were then tried in Krakow, Poland. He was the only one who was acquitted. He was referred to as the good man of the camp. Prisoners testified on his behalf that he did not follow the instructions that other physicians followed. So in that moment, and no doubt Ava had done a lot of internal work up to this point, but she chose forgiveness. In her words, I felt a burden lift from me. I was no longer in the grip of pain and hate. I was finally free. That day, I forgave the Nazis, all of the doctors and the soldiers, everything that had happened. And privately, I forgave my parents, whom I hated all my life for not having saved me from this experience. And then I forgave myself for hating my parents. Did Simon get it wrong and Ava get it right? No. We all walk different paths on forgiveness. It's complicated. But in that moment, and I trust she had done work before that moment, Ava chose forgiveness. That's the story with Simon. The second story is more personal. It has to do with Steve, and that's not his real name. Steve is in prison, and he's someone I've been visiting for two years now. I was partnered with him through a uh, nonprofit in Minneapolis called Amicus. They do work with uh, inmates and people leaving prison as they reintegrate into society. It's a wonderful organization. A a month after I had gone through the training and I had signed up to be a one-on-one volunteer, I got a call. We'd like to partner you with Steve, the coordinator said. And she went on to say, Steve is in for life. Life, I said. At the training, they had said, most frequently, you're partnered with somebody who's coming out in two or three years. It's a short-term thing. Life, I said. And she said, yes, for raping and murdering a young woman. And when I heard that, I didn't know if I wanted to visit. I didn't know if I wanted to do that anymore. I, I, I talked with the people at Amicus. I wrestled with my fear and anger. And I decided to go. But in those first few visits, it was a wrenching experience. The, the questions I wrestled with, what does it mean that I am visiting this person? That I'm in relationship with him? And, and what would the family think if they knew I was visiting I struggled until I remembered the story of Sister Helen Prejean. You know this story from the movie Dead Man Walking. 
where she befriends a death row inmate, Matthew Ponsolet, a man who has raped and killed a young woman. And what Sister Helen Prejean does in this book and in the movie is she calls Matthew by his true names. She calls him a murderer. Yes, he killed someone. But he is also a child of God, of the beloved, who is hurting and lonely and despite that facade of toughness, is scared. She does not excuse or condone or sugarcoat the horror of what he has done. That story inspires me, and I continue to visit with Steve. Over the months, I begin to understand that no one, none of us, not one of you, is solely defined by the worst or the best thing that you have ever done. It sets a trajectory to your life, make no mistake about it, but you are not only defined by the worst or best thing that you have done. Steve belongs in prison, let me be clear. He took another human life. But he is more than a murderer. He is a brother, a son. He's a knitter. He's made hats for children around the world. He has sent my family Christmas and birthday cards. He plays games. We found out a couple months into our relationship, that he plays Dungeons and Dragons with other inmates, a game I played growing up. It was a surprising connection we shared. He was badly abused and betrayed as a child by a number of adults. And he no longer blames anyone else for what he did. Visiting with Steve has helped me understand how close all of us can get to that edge in our lives when driven by anger or fear or bad judgment or drunkenness or lust or whatever it is, we are that close to the precipice. A little push, a little nudge, and everything is different. And somehow, as we lean into that dark space, perhaps by nothing less than grace, we come back to the life we know and the life we have today. But we've all been that close. I've learned a lot from Steve, and I enjoy the hour we have together every month. And now, when I visit him, I fill out, there's paperwork you fill out every time, there's a section, relationship to prisoner, that you fill out on the paperwork, and instead of saying volunteer, visitor, I simply put down friend. Is that bad? Is that wrong? Does it mean I forgive him? Have I compromised my integrity? Those are questions I have wrestled with. And I answer, no. It's not my job to forgive on behalf of someone else. It is my job to stretch and to try to understand another human being. And as I have visited, I have seen the fullness of who Steve is, who he might become even behind bars. And I can forgive myself, if there's forgiveness in this equation, I can forgive myself for imagining that his life is so completely different from mine. I have some understanding of how this could happen, how the pieces were lined up in his early life. But I do not forget his victim or her family 
And I have to acknowledge that because in my family, we have not suffered a loss like this, someone being killed or murdered. There is a distance I have that allows this perhaps to happen. But in visiting with him, I know through that understanding of his life that I want a society that protects its young ones, that he, that Steve won't be repeated in future generations and then go on to become abusive and violent. It's complicated. Forgiveness is complicated. It's not easy. It's murky. But I think it is always an option. It is always an option. And maybe this is what the Jewish rabbi meant when he said, forgive not seven times, but seven times seventy. Forgiveness is a process, a practice, always an option, always an invitation from a past you cannot change to a future yet to be shaped by the spirit you choose. And understanding is part of the path of forgiveness. Understanding is about seeing how someone could have acted the way they did and knowing that in another life we might have acted the same way. We might have been a Nazi or a Jew, a Tibetan monk, a man or a woman, black or white, or a sea pirate. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, as he meditated on this tragic loss of this young girl's life, it's easy at first to side with the young girl. But in my meditation, I saw that if I had been born in the village of the pirate and raised in the same conditions as he was, I am now the pirate. I cannot condemn myself so easily. I saw that many babies are born along the Gulf of Siam, and if we do not do something about the situation in 25 years, a number of them will become sea pirates. So if you take a gun and shoot the pirate, you shoot all of us, because all of us are in some, to some extent responsible for this state of affairs. For Thich Nhat Hanh, understanding and loving kindness can lead to action and change so that violence and pain might be lessened. It's like mothers against drunk driving. That pain, that loss drives you to lessen that pain in the world. Or people who do hot call answer hotlines or set up ways to protect children or orphans. What appears to be true is that in any moment, forgiveness and understanding might be possible. As Eva Kaur, the the woman from the concentration camp, the twin, reminds us, we have the right and power to forgive. We are not helpless, powerless victims. Forgiveness is an act of self-healing and self-empowerment. Forgiveness is our right, she says, And no one can take that away from us. It's different for each one of you here. And even if forgiveness comes slowly or feels impossible, I invite you to continue to tell your story, to let the hurt work its way out, to be held by others and cared for by others, those you trust around you. 
and know. Know that someday, by miracle or grace or love beyond understanding, forgiveness is possible. Peace is possible. As we walk on this road, step by step, together. May it be so. Amen.